Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jonathan Holmes, like Mark said, and uh, I've been here for about three years now, and I'm married to Amber uh, for the past five years. And our family is growing since we've been in Norman. We have a daughter named Quinn, who is a year and a half, and we are expecting a boy in the middle of March of next year. So we are so thrilled that they get to grow up in a community like Wildwood. It is a privilege to be a pastor here. But more than being a pastor, we are ministered by the staff. We are, we are ministered by the amazing families here. And we just, uh, we just want to thank you as a family in, in your presence that you have shared the gospel with us just as much as we have, we have shared the gospel with you all. But, you know, one question I get as a student pastor quite a bit is, uh, what does being a student pastor look like? Now, for some of you, you, you maybe grew up in youth ministry, or uh, you've served in youth ministry, uh, or you're in it right now, you have a student in it, but largely, the question that I get is, what does it look like to be a student pastor? So let me just give you a glimpse, because really, it's, it's a fun question, because every day is different uh, for our staff here. It looks like being surrounded by college students and older adults who are passionate about sharing the gospel with younger students. It looks like high school students choosing to invest, like these guys up here, their junior and senior year to minister to middle school students, right? This is amazing. It looks like leading worship with my favorite student band. It looks like hanging out with middle school students every Wednesday night and learning from their craziness, their energy, and also their wisdom. Sometimes it even looks like, just like this past Friday, staying up all night with my closest 200 friends. Yes, great night just happened. That is our annual all-nighter. And isn't it interesting that Mark chooses this Sunday to give me to preach? Hmm. Interesting. But it looks different every day, but I just want you to know how much of a privilege and honor it is to serve you and to, uh, and to lead you this morning in God's word. Know that my heart is, is not for you to hear my words. My heart is to hear, for you to hear the gospel and to hear and take away from scripture this morning. But if you would, bow your head and pray as we open up God's word. Father, we pause knowing that these words are not words written about you. They are your very words, that this is your breath. And Lord, we ask that our hearts and our minds would be open to it. Even me, as I, as I teach, Lord, may you be honored and glorified in my attitude, in my words, and may ultimately we be able to see life change, that those who have come to know Jesus and follow him would fall more in love with him this morning, and that those who have maybe not bought into Christianity yet, they would clearly hear the gospel and that they would take the first step of faith that they would have the gift of faith this morning, your spirit transformation in their heart and their mind. We ask you, knowing that you will, you will bring amazing growth from your word as we open it together this morning. We praise you, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have a Bible, it would be great if you could turn to Exodus 14 with me. 
We'll get there eventually, but there is a little bit of an introduction because right now, so this morning, if you haven't, if you haven't caught on, it's kind of like we took the, uh, the service that we would have Sunday morning downstairs, we've, we've, we've uprooted it and we've planted it upstairs for you all to take part in. And this is a great opportunity for you to see that as the church grows and there's more and more people that we can get out of our bubble, we can see that we have, uh, we have ministries reaching every age group. And more than that, we have families in, in every time that you can step in and you can help minister to. Uh, but this morning, this would be the message that I would teach downstairs because we're continuing to walk verse by verse in the book of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses and what that means. And so for you, you haven't been with us for the past five weeks, so it's important that you understand that Exodus, as I pull kind of a passage from the middle of the book, that you understand the the overall message of the book, the context around our passage this morning, so you can get a better understanding of where we're at. But, so the first question we have to ask is, what is Exodus about? Okay, and then the slide will say, Exodus tells the story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, providing for his people in the desert, and teaching his people how to worship him at Mount Sinai. When we think of the book of Exodus, you probably think of the escape, right? The plagues and, and crossing over the Red Sea and maybe the first song, the song of Moses. But then we kind of forget that there's this time in the desert there's a long period of time at Mount Sinai that, that God doesn't just redeem his people and peace out. He redeems them and he teaches them and he provides for them. He invites them into a relationship. And, and as we look at what is Exodus about, we also have to ask the question, how do we read Exodus? And so something I talk a lot about to my students because they're kind of starting to read the Bible for themselves and they're trying to understand, understand scripture is that no one comes to the Bible with a blank mind. No one comes to the Bible with a clear lens. We all come with chips and cracks and and blurred vision because we have experience and knowledge and presumptions that we prescribe to the text. And so, you know, I haven't had glasses forever, and uh, sophomore year of college, I noticed that as I was studying late at night, that I began getting worse headaches, and my headaches got so bad that my, my vision would blur, and I would have to, like, rest my eyes, and then wake up, and then, and then continue to reading, but then it, it kept getting worse, and I was like, okay, something's wrong. It's not that I'm just tired or that the science book isn't that boring. Like, I need to go to the optometrist, and so I went uh, and he said what I was suspecting, hey, you, you need glasses. The lenses in your eyes, are, they're not working right, so let's, let's put lenses on and let's see if you can read better. And boom, this was amazing, right? Now I can study endlessly. Or no, maybe play video games better. But I, I could study, right? I, I put on my lenses and, and now I wear glasses. I wear, I wear contacts sometimes. But these lenses help me understand the words in a book. Your faces out there, if I take it off, I'm a little bit less nervous because I don't see as many faces. But... It's true that we don't come to Scripture with, with, with just an objective lens. We come with experience. We come with presumptions. But what I'm afraid is that we've missed the lens that Jesus has provided for us, right? Jesus tells us how to read his word, including the Old Testament. So we don't go to the Old Testament reading it just like a history textbook or reading it for memory. We read it for life change and understanding Jesus better. So, so look at, you don't have to turn there, but John 5.39 will be on the screens. And it says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. See, Jesus tells us the lens in which we are to read the Old Testament, like the book of Exodus. And he even goes more particular to our situation in the next, in, in about five verses later, go ahead and put up the next verse. It says, for if you believed Moses, 
You would believe me, for he wrote of me. The book of Exodus is not a story for the Israelites. The book of Exodus is not a history book or a a, a nonfiction story we can learn from. It is the story of Jesus as our Redeemer. Friends, this this is so important for us to understand. It is so important that we read Scripture, including the Old Testament, through Jesus' lenses. That we look for shadows of Christ that he makes perfect, that we don't just see the redemption of the Israelites as something that happened in history that we can write off. We see the redemption of the Israelites as a beautiful picture of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Right, and now, you're probably thinking that I made this up myself, but I know some, maybe some of you have heard this before, but Adrian Rogers said it better than I ever could, and he said this, cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed. The blood of Jesus stains every page. Our lens in which we read Exodus must be Jesus-tinted lenses, right? This is, this is so important as we look at our text, as we look at their escape from the Egyptians, the Exodus, right? And so I'm getting to Exodus 14, and let's go ahead and do that now. And so let's look now, though, as we get into the text, as we get into Exodus 14. You've had your Bible open there for a little bit. But as we get in there, it's important for us to understand the context meaning that what surrounds this passage. So let's not take this story and remove it and say, here's the point I'm willing to make, right? No, no let's look at the story as, as a whole first to ensure that we're understanding what the Lord is teaching us. And so the context of our passage, and it says this in the next slide, said Moses had been called out. At the very beginning, he's been called out. And he has been asked to be a mediator for God, right, to the people of Israel. Then Moses goes, and, and, he, and he talks to Pharaoh, and then the, th- the ten plagues come. And it climaxes with the final plague, the death of the firstborn. And then how Israel escapes judgment is the Passover lamb. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ the Passover lamb is. And that is the cost of their release of slavery from Egypt And as they are redeemed out of Egypt, God does not say, all right, I believe you can make it by yourself. He provides the pillars of cloud and fire, right? Pictures of the Holy Spirit for us to guide them to exactly where they need to be, exactly at the right time, and to ensure that they navigate to a relationship with him, right? It's not that he lets them escape, right? God provides the sacrificial lamb, they escape, and then they're on their own. No, 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 no. God provides for them even in the desert through food and through guidance, right? Daily provision. And so now let's read in Exodus 14, and we're going to start in verse 5. So we'll read, we'll read three separate sections of Scripture, and we're going to read Exodus 14, 5 through 9 now. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. While the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by pi Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. Nailed it, yes. Okay. Yeah, I was worried. So this is the, we'll, we'll pause here before we get into it, but this is just as the Lord predicted, right? He tells Moses, this is what's going to happen in Pharaoh's heart. This is what he's going to do. And 
He does it, right? And then Pharaoh, so he's with his council and he says, guess what? This, we made a bad decision. We gotta fix this, right? They're still in arm's reach. Let's go after them. Let's, let's get them back because really they've grown accustomed to this workforce, right? They're, they're the builders. Like the Egyptians are like, this is great. Like our society's doing great because these other people are working for us. Man, this lifestyle is solid. And then they leave. And Pharaoh's like, uh-oh. Okay, yeah, like these plagues were bad, but this decision seems to be really bad, right? We're going to have to get back to work. And so they go after them, right? Now, can you imagine being the Israelites? You are like praising God for the redemption he's given. You're in the desert and, and you're being guided by a supernatural pillar of cloud and fire. This is amazing. But then all of a sudden you look behind you and all of the incredible Egyptian army is tearing after you. Right, And so let's look at what Israel responds to, the, to this, this enemy screaming towards them. And so in verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, which is a natural response. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Sarcasm. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Right? Right, so they are, they are filled with fear, and they go, their hands go from praising God for the redemption that he has provided to pointing at Mo- Moses and saying, how could you do this to us? You have led us to our grave, and you promised redemption. But you know what's, you know what's interesting? Israel, the people of Israel, I think are remembering differently, right? Have we ever had this moment? I know I do all the time with Amber, where I'm like, no, babe, I said this. And she goes, look, I promise you. And she'll like pull out like where she wrote it down or I'm like, oh, crud. So let's look back. Are they, could they possibly be remembering how they responded to Moses wrong? And I, and I think they might be. So if you keep your, keep your finger there and you turn back to Exodus 4, in verse 29, we'll look at exactly how they responded to Moses. So Moses goes to them, right? And he says, hey, look, the, the Lord has heard your suffering. Redemption is at hand. This is, a, this is a beautiful message, and how, does Moses, how, does, how do the Israelites respond to Moses? Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and here's how they responded. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is not what the Israelites are saying now. They're, they're worshiping. They're like, let's do this. This stinks here. Now they're like, they're saying, hey, you know, we, we appreciate what Egypt was doing for us, right? We, we appreciate the Egyptians. And Moses is like, what? This is, this is not what you said to me. You were like, all gung-ho, redemption is here. I'll follow you in the middle of the desert. And now you're turning on me. But how clear of a picture of this is of us? Right, No matter how many times God provides for us, in the moment of an emergency, in the moment of affliction, in the moment of nervousness, anxiety, you go, how could you? Right? But the truth here that can be found is that, is that they were freed from slavery, but their heart still rested on their slavery. Their identity was in what they were. 
They remembered the good times, how they, they were provided meals every once in a while. And they remembered the comfort that they had, like life. And all of that is into question now. And when emergency comes, when fear comes, we question, will God do what he promises to do? And Tim Keller said it so well and succinctly. And he said, you can take the people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the people as easily. You know, but you don't know. You believe, but you don't act like you believe. How true of this is us. We look at God and we say, you are all powerful, and yet we act like he's not. You're a provider, and we act like he's not. This is true of, of, of me and my family. I'm wondering, if it, is it true of, of you that, that when the Lord leads you to a place where maybe you don't think you should be, that you question, is he truly leading you, even when he clearly is by his Spirit? Right? This is so important for us to understand as they question Moses, as they question God's provision. But no matter how many times the Lord has delivered us in the past, when a new trial comes up, we forget what God has done and what he has promised to do. The promises of God are true. And you know what's beautiful is when when Moses responds to his people, he doesn't rebuke them. He understands their fear. He understands where they're at. He doesn't say, get away from me. You no longer deserve to follow God. He takes them where they are, and he responds as God's mouthpiece. And let's look at that response. So if you've ever been in that position, if you've ever been like, yeah, this is, this is not a place where I should be, or I, you know, I, I, I know the truth that I've been saved from my sins, but a lot of times I don't act like it. Like I know the truth, truth God will provide for me, but yet my anxiety, my stress, and My unbelief stirs up, and I wonder if he really will. If you've ever thought that, then these are God's words to you. This is the exact position the Israelites are in as Egypt is approaching from the back. They see the Red Sea in the front. They're like, "Uh uh-oh, there's no way to go. God has led us here. Why in the world would God lead us to our grave? And let's look at how God responds through Moses. And Moses said, and this is in verse 13 of chapter 14, And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent, right? This is God's hand at work. And so this is really where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning in verse 13, and it really breaks up into three separate sections, okay? And so verse 13, Moses responds, and he says three things, one thing that they must not do, and two things that they really need to do. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, right? These are the three sections we'll really spend the rest of our morning on. Because as we face circumstances we, that we don't trust God in, that we're filled with fear, we're filled with doubt, we have questions that we truly don't believe Scripture will answer, or that a mentor could answer, or that the Spirit could guide our heart to, when we are facing those doubts and those circumstances, we fear that God will not do as he has promised to do. And so the first is, let's look at what Moses told Israel not to do. Fear not. And the tagline here is, as long as fear has possession of our minds, we are blinded to what God is doing. As long as fear rests in our heart, 
we are blinded to what God is doing. Now, if we took a poll in the room, we would, we would see that everyone has been afraid at some point, right? Maybe, maybe not recently if you're, a, if you're like a big tough guy like, and you're like okay with bees being around. I don't know what it is with things that have stingers. I just don't like them, okay? And like I think I have some people out there that, that trust me. I'm not like, I'm not an outdoorsy person, but when a, when a wasp or a bee comes around, I'm not like, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll punch it. I'll punch it right in the face. And it's like, no, I'm gonna run. Like fear is stirred up in me. I'm not going towards that thing, right? We've all been afraid. We have. But I, I think we would believe and I think we would, we would agree that the Israelites have reason to be afraid. I mean, I, I, look, the Red Sea is not a small little lake that you can like puddle jump over, right? There's a sea in front of them and they're going, uh-oh. They look behind them and they go, uh-oh. And then they go, where do we go, right? Like there's nowhere to go. We have been led to our grave. They have a reason to be afraid. They have a reason to have fear, but what they don't have a reason is to fear that God wouldn't provide, right? It's one thing for, stir, for fear or being afraid to be stirred up in you. It's another for you to eliminate your dependence on God. For you to not, no longer believe that God will provide for you. There's one, one way of feeling fear, but there's another way of, fearing, of feeling fear controlling your heart. And so fear not is one of the greatest commands seen throughout Scripture, right? And this is, this is one of the slides that I have for you. And these are the certain areas that I picked out. And it says in Abraham, it for, it, to Abraham in Genesis 15, Fear not was what God said to Abraham. Do not fear and do not be dismayed was his message to Joshua. Do not fear was his command to Gideon. Do not be afraid was David's counsel to Solomon. Fear not, little flock, is Jesus' message to us. But why? why? How in the world can they not be afraid? The impending doom is coming at them. And for you, maybe financial crisis or marital crisis or maybe too much school or too much anxiety, whatever it is for you, there is, there is fear maybe even happening right now as we stir up emotions. But the question is, God's message, is it enough? How, how, could we possibly, how could we possibly be without fear when circumstances produce fear? That's the question. And I think the answer is the, is the next thing Moses says. Isaiah repeats it in, in 29, but we'll move on because we're running a little low on time. But it's the, the next sec- sequence is stand firm. Right? Fear not, but how is that to be done? Stand firm. But that could also be some translations say, stand still. Others, uh, commentators will say, it also means be quiet. Stop talking. Stop gossiping. Stop murmuring about your problems. And the tagline there is the action of redemption is standing still in what God has done on your behalf. Remember when when I said that it doesn't matter how many times God provides for us, when we face emergency circumstances, when we face doubt, when we face fear, we wonder, will he provide this time. So is God your provider even when circumstances are hard? Let's look at what stand firm means. And Charles Spurgeon said this, keep the posture of an upright man ready for action, expecting further orders, cheerfully and patiently awaiting the directing voice. While Jehovah lives, there is no room for fear. A happy future awaits thee. 
Moses tells the Israelites to stand firm, stand still. How to do that? That means to wait, to be silent, to listen to him, to watch for him. But more than that, for your heart to not rest on your fear, but to rest on dependence in him. Stand firm. But you know, this is so counterculture for us. Because when we become fearful, what do we do? We move, we act, we go. God helps those who help themselves, by golly, right? Like, that's what we believe. But yet, what Scripture tells us, what God speaks to us is, stand firm, stand still. This is not inactivity. This is an action of faith. So for some of you who are like go-getters, you're like, hey, plan A or let's do this, right? Like, this, this is going to be a struggle because this feels like inactivity to you. But what greater action of faith is it to stand still, stand firm in God's presence, in what he has done. The greatest way for us to be confident in God providing for us is to remember and meditate on what he has done for us. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the last and final one is to see this very salvation. Now, this is, this is kind of weird wording, right? To see salvation. How do you see salvation? How do you see redemption? Haven't they seen it? Haven't they seen it through the plagues? Haven't they seen it at work in their hearts and in their lives? But remember, it doesn't matter how many times God provides, right? It doesn't matter how many times God provides. We wonder in the next time, will he provide? And the, the, the summary statement here is, understand that what God has promised to do he will indeed do. See, Moses, as the mouthpiece of God, is asking Israel to understand their salvation. Understand. Understand. Know where it came from. Know that it's not what they did. Know that it's not their action of smearing the blood of the lamb on their door. It is the blood of the lamb. By grace we are saved. It is through that action of faith that it is applied. But you know what's interesting is that no matter how they would act, right? So for you go-getters out there, stand firm. What? No, Israel should be doing something. Take up arms. They're not ready. What are they going to do? They're anxious movements. Are they going to look at the sea and they're going to try to part it? That, that, that's not going to work. And try to swim across. That's definitely not going to work, right? That there is no way for them to do. And so to rest and stand firm in God is also to understand that your salvation comes from him. And you know, this is, this is the truth that we will rest on this morning will rest on to understand salvation is to understand that what makes Christianity different from every other religion is that it's not what we do, it's what he has done. It's not the redemption that we work for, it's the redemption that he has made, period. And then so I, you, know, you study other religions and you look at what they teach and it's all about, so if we think of the Red Sea as the problem between salvation and man, and religion is the bridge in the middle, right? If we look at the problem like that, then we see that all other religions say it's a process of building a bridge. You must get to the other side, and so this process entails lots of things, right? Sometimes it says donate enough money. Sometimes it says know enough knowledge. Sometimes it says do enough good works. But you know what the problem is? Is that it's a process. You never know if you've quite made it. You never know if it takes one more good work or if your good works really do outweigh your bad works, right? You never know if you're quite there. 
But this is not Christianity. If that's, if that's Christianity to you, friends, you're not believing in the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. That's not true. That's not Christianity. Christianity is immediate. It is one time you are an alien and stranger. Immediately, like that, you are a son and daughter. Grace, right? One time you are not in the household of God. Now you are. You are transferred from the, ki- the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. Salvation is not a process. Sanctification is. Salvation is redemption, and in redemption we have the blood of Jesus that has been made on our door. That is grace. The the waters have been parted, and by faith, in faithful obedience, we walk through it. Salvation is, is is not, hey, this is step one. If you follow to step two, you're saved then. But then you need to step three it, and then you need to go, no, 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 no. Believe and trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Because out of that, out of that we understand grace and out of that we begin to obey. See, I think we get confused a lot of time with the Israelites. We think that God first gave them the law to obey. Once they obeyed, they are redeemed. How does the story go? Not that, right? They are redeemed out of Egypt. They are provided for in the desert. And then they are given the law so that they may obey him. This is the truth of redemption. It is not a process. It is a radical, inconceivable grace that is cast over us. And the Lord says, you are now my son and daughter. And you go, wait, I don't, I don't deserve this. He goes, I know, but you are now my son and daughter. And now, out of that appreciation for that grace, I don't deserve this, you then obey. Obedience comes through appreciation, not from a law-giving, striking God. The law makes sense when there is grace, and that alone. So friends, as we reflect, let's recap and let's remember that the Lord first says, do not fear. As long as fear is possession of our minds, we will not see God at work. Stand firm, stand still, be quiet, rest in God. The action of redemption is standing still what God has done on our behalf. See salvation, understand that what God has promised to do, he will indeed That what God has promised to do, he will do for you. When you doubt, will God provide for me? Remember, he asks for you to not fear. To rest in him by standing still. Waiting for his presence. And then finally, to see and understand his salvation that he has provided. Would you pray with me? Father, may this truth move in our hearts and minds. May we see that we try to earn your grace and favor, and we cannot do that. We already have. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are saved, we are redeemed, and we love you. Spirit, move in our hearts, guiding us to obedience, guiding us to love you more, guiding us to love others better, guiding us to be thankful for your redemption. Give us confidence, provide the hope that we need. Lord, we ask that we would recognize that we are a son and daughter of the Most High. We worship you this morning. Amen.